Gates is really, he's an anomaly in the party. More than a couple of people said to me, he's the most unpopular member of Congress. Hmm. Um, and, and yet, he just almost single-handedly, not, not quite, but almost single-handedly uh, succeeded in removing the House Speaker. And so it's, it's kind of a paradox, you know, like how, how is it possible that somebody this unpopular is able to pull off something like that? That's my colleague, Dexter Filkins. Dexter has spent months digging into Florida Congressman Matt Gates, who has become one of the Republican Party's rising stars, even as he threatens to break the party apart. I asked Dexter to come on the show to tell us more about Gates's rise to power and about what actually motivates him, aside from just creating chaos. This is The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. So, Dexter, you often report on conflicts overseas, but you were also raised in Florida and you sometimes write about Florida politics. You came on the show a little more than a year ago to talk about your profile of Ron DeSantis. So I'm wondering what got you interested in doing a deep dive into Matt Gates. Well, well, Gates is a really interesting character. On one hand, he's very colorful. He's really funny. Uh, he's very sarcastic. He's very quick-witted. He's fast on his feet. Uh, on the other, he has become incredibly powerful. No one in American history had taken down a Speaker of the House before the end of his term. And Gates basically did that. He's become very, very powerful very, very quickly. All those things together, I thought, would make for a a very interesting story. Can you tell us a little bit about his backstory? I mean, who was he before he became so incredibly powerful? Well, again, super interesting. He, He is from the Florida Panhandle, which uh, for the rest of us from Florida, we always refer to as Lower Alabama, uh, <laughs> but but uh, but but he he grew up uh, in Niceville, Florida, which is a, which is a town in the Panhandle. He comes from a very politically prominent family and a very wealthy family. His his father, Don Gates, was the president of the Florida Senate and also a very successful businessman. So I think I was looking at his campaign finance disclosures. The most recent one I saw had his net worth at $33 million. He had a reputation of being very smart in high school. He was the state debate champion, which is no small thing. But I think pretty quickly, at least according to what I could I could find in the public record, he, you know, he's got this kind of bad boy side to him. He piled up something like at least eight speeding tickets, uh, including including an arrest for for drunk driving. And people said this to me, which is basically he he was this kind of classic son of of rich parents, very entitled. He kind of carried on as if as if he you know a wouldn't get in trouble and b there wouldn't he wouldn't have to worry about the consequences of his actions. And I and I think there's a there is there's that part of him. And there's the serious part of them, and kind of both of those things carry through over the years until until the present. You know, for this piece, it, it looks like Gates actually cooperated with you, at least somewhat. How did you get him to talk to you? Uh, emphasis on the word somewhat. <laughs> I, um, I asked Gates for an interview like pretty early on when I started working on this piece. He, you know, very politely declined. He said no. Mm-hmm. And the, the following has happened to me before. The, the person that I'm writing about says no. And then, you know, over the course of several weeks, Gates discovered that I was essentially talking to everyone 
who, who he'd ever, he'd ever known. Um, and so, and so he's like, I better so talk I think, to this guy. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that was my son. So he, he called me up one day. I mean, I was, I was sitting at my desk working and my phone rang and it was Matt Gates. He said, okay, let's, you know, let, let's talk. And so I ended up meeting him in a town called Little Elm, Texas, uh, just a couple of weeks ago where he was doing a campaign event for a congressional candidate, Republican congressional candidate. So we sat down and we had a 40 minute chat. How did that um, family background that you described earlier, how, how did that inform his politics or his brand of politics? That's that's a really good question. It's not, I asked him that question. I think it's fair to say his father is a pretty like, kind of old guard Republican in the sense that he's, he's pretty low key. He endorsed Jeb Bush for president in 2016. Matt, he's a libertarian. But I think what Matt is attempting, I think it's more fair to say that he's more inclined to radical change than he is to being a conservative. You know, I, I think mm. of a conservative, a small C conservative is somebody who kind of respects tradition, uh, wants to kind of carry it on into the future, is, you know, wants incremental change, doesn't trust radical change. That That's not Matt Gates. He's He's a libertarian, you know, truly speaking. What really struck me was he he said, essentially, uh, Tallahassee, the, the capital of Florida, state government works. Now, Florida politics, it's the, the governor is Republican and both houses of the legislature are Republican and have been Republican, I think, for something like 25 years. So that it's not gridlocked like the Congress is. But he said, look, it works. And one of the reasons it works is term limits. You come to Tallahassee. You have a very limited amount of time uh, to do what you want to do, and then you're done. Um, and he said that changes everything. When you go to Washington, it's a permanent culture. The congressmen are there forever. They're trying to please the lobbyists. They're trying to raise money, and it changes everything. And I thought, you know, that that's a super interesting point and a, a really critical insight into like not only how he thinks, but also like why 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 doesn't Washington work? So there, there are a couple of key events that you revisit in the piece that kind of speak to how Gates became a, a national presence. And one of them is the 2018 Florida election recount. I'm wondering if you could tell us what happened there and what Gates's role was. Well, it's it's super interesting. So it's remarkable. Florida has changed quite a bit as far as we can tell since 2018. But at the time, it was almost a kind of perfectly divided state between Republican and Democrat. And so you had two statewide races, one with Ron DeSantis and then the other with Rick Scott for, for governor and Senate, respectively. But those races were deadlocked and they were super, super close, divided by less than 1% of the vote. Automatic recount followed. So the recounting had begun. And who turns up in Fort Lauderdale, where the ballots for Broward County, one of the biggest counties in the state, are being counted? I not know any better not to destroy ballots. This Gates turns up. They're doing. You know, Rapunzel spun straw into gold. Here, you're spinning tens of thousands of ballots out of thin air, out of nothing. There's no chain of custody for these ballots. There's and so super interesting when you go back. I I kind of vaguely knew about that demonstration. I honestly, I forgot about it. And then if you see what happened in 2021 in January in Washington, stop the steal. In that failure, we should vindicate the rights of states. We should vindicate the subpoenas in Arizona that have been issued to get a hold of these voting machines. And we should reject these electors. I yield back. Gentlemen's time has expired. In some ways, it looks like a dry run. 
it's one of the key moments when members of the Republican Party begin to basically deny election results. And the, the first of those, which I mentioned in my piece, that was in 2000, when George W. Bush and Al Gore, when their race for president was tied. Also in Florida, it's known sort of jokingly as the Brooks Brothers riot, uh, when a bunch of Republican activists tried to storm the Miami-Dade County election office when, when the ballots were being recounted. An impromptu protest by Republicans in the lobby of election headquarters after the count is taken into a room which could only hold a handful of observers. The point being that there have been these organized attempts to basically deny the election results. And you see it in 2000 and then in 2018 in Fort Lauderdale and then 2021 in Washington. 2021 was not the beginning of something. It was it was kind of the culmination of something. Yeah, in your piece, you mentioned that the Proud Boys were at that rally in 2018, and, and they were, of course, there at the Capitol on January 6th as well. Can you explain Gates's ties to the Proud Boys? Are there ties? I'd say he shows up in the same places, hmm. basically. They know each other. I, I talked to a staffer who, who served on the January 6th committee that investigated uh, the riot uh, in 2021, and he said Gates is part of this milieu of kind of election deniers, and in the case of the Pride Boys, kind of street thugs. It's an ecosystem of people who have begun to deny election results. And the Proud Boys are part of that. And Gates is part of that. And they know each other. So let's talk more about Gates's role on January 6th. He was at the Capitol along with his colleagues in Congress. And when the rioters dispersed, Gates was one of the Republicans who voted not to certify Biden's victory. He also gave a speech shortly afterward where he basically blamed the whole thing on Antifa. The Washington Times has just reported some pretty compelling evidence from a facial recognition company showing that some of the people who breached the Capitol today were not Trump supporters. They were masquerading as Trump supporters and, in fact, were members of the violent terrorist group Antifa. What would you say motivated that speech? I mean, what, what do you make of that speech? I found it to be a consummate political performance. I think he was trying to make the best of a terrible situation. But... The way, the way Gates explains it is, well, you know, I didn't know who, who did the riot. There was this story that appeared in the Washington Times that said that it was a story about a, fa- a piece of facial recognition software that had identified members of Antifa at, at the demonstration. And that was the basis of the speech he gave. So, so in Gates's words, he's like, I didn't know, but I read the story in the Washington Times. And like, I was just talking about that. But I I found that, to be honest, uh, a little disingenuous. Um, You know, Gates knows the people, he knows many of the people who were involved. Again, it's the the milieu, it's the the kind of ecosystem, and Gates Gates knows these people. And so I thought for him to kind of, you know, moments later to kind of say, well, this is Antifa, he had every reason to know that it wasn't Antifa. In your piece, Dexter, you wrote that Matt Gates was visiting the White House ahead of January 6th. Um, what were those meetings about? Like, do you know what Matt Gates wanted? It's not entirely clear what Gates, why Gates was doing what he was doing. We, yeah. we, we only know what he, what he was doing. I mean, he told me himself, I went to the White House because I had questions about the elections and I had questions about the certification of the ballots in several states. And so, you know, we met with Mike Pence 
And we discuss those things. And ultimately, he votes against certifying ballots, and specifically in several states. That's one piece of it. You know, they're all trying to keep Trump in office, even though Trump has just lost the election. But there's another reason why he's in the White House, which is, and he, he made more than one visit, and that's to get a pardon. In the words of one of the Trump White House officials, he was seeking a blanket pardon for anything he did uh, from from the beginning of time until the present. <laughs> and again, it's not entirely clear why he's looking for a pardon. It could be for the discussions he had over January 6th, but I think the more likely explanation is that he was trying to get a pardon for the potential indictment that he was facing at the hands of the Justice Department. More after the break. Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Dexter, can you talk about the origin of the Justice Department's sex crimes investigation into Gates? Yeah, it's 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 complicated. Yeah. Um, it's complicated, but it's really fascinating. It starts in a town outside of Orlando called Sanford, Sanford, Florida, in Seminole County. There's a tax collector there named Joel Greenberg. From the moment he got elected, he just went on basically a crime spree. I mean, he just starts embezzling money stealing money, uh, all kinds of things. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. And, and he was a friend of Matt Gates. Gates used to come into town, apparently for the weekends or whatever, and they would all go out and have a good time together. Kind of a long story, and it's recounted in the piece. Uh, ultimately, investigators, when they, when they arrested Joel Greenberg, they found that he had been making ID cards for himself. He was taking old IDs from other people who lived in other parts of the country and putting his picture on them. They became intrigued and they wanted to know why. And one thing led to another. And ultimately it leads to this website, which I think was at the time was called seekingarrangement.com. It's kind of a, like a sugar daddy website. That's how Greenberg and Gates, who were friends, as far as I can tell, that's how they would entertain themselves. That's how all that started. I think where it sort of turns potentially bad, Greenberg, uh, the tax collector, finds out one day that one of the girls was not 18, she was 17. And so that makes it a crime. And so what the federal prosecutors were investigating was whether Gates had transported this woman, girl at the time, for, for the purposes of sex. So that, that was what, what was investigated. At the same time, Greenberg pleads guilty to like a whole slew of crimes. He gets sentenced to 11 years in federal prison. 
he agrees to cooperate with prosecutors against Gates. And so there's a lot of evidence against Gates. And the federal prosecutors were kind of going through all this, but ultimately concluded that there wasn't enough evidence to charge Matt Gates. Gates has vehemently and many times denied uh, any kind of wrongdoing at all in this case. Does he say that he thought she was 18 or that she was 18? I mean, what is his line on, on all of this? I think the best statement of it that he made, he made on Tucker Carlson's show on when Tucker was still with Fox News. This was an operation to destroy me, to harm my family, to hinder my ability to serve the district and the movement that I represent in Congress. I'm innocent. I have maintained right. my innocence. I have been entirely consistent on this fact. And he denies everything across the board. I think most of what I know of the case is from the lawyers involved and also from uh, a series of letters that Greenberg wrote. And in these letters, Green Greenberg says um, he got an anonymous text one day saying, hey, you know, that uh, woman you're sleeping with is a girl. You know, she's underage. And and according to according to Greenberg, he's like, oh, my God, like we had no idea. You know, uh, Gates had no idea. Like we kind of freaked out. Um, you know, we we waited we didn't have any contact with her again until she turned 18. That was sort of Greenberg's excuse. The law's pretty cut and dry here, though, at least as I understand it. Right. It doesn't matter uh, if you thought the yeah. person was older. It's like if they're not 18, then it's it's statutory yeah. rape, right? Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter. It's like it's like what they would what a lawyer would say is a case of strict liability. If you did it, you're guilty. It doesn't matter what you thought, what you thought you knew, what the girls said. It's like period paragraph. Um guilty as charged. Why did the Justice Department decide to close its investigation? It was um, unclear as to why the Justice Department didn't, didn't, why they decided not to charge Gates. They gave no statement or any explanation. They kind of made a round of calls to the, to the lawyers involved in the case and said, we're not going to charge this case. Goodbye. So you're kind of left to speculate uh, as to why it didn't happen. It seems like this is kind of a pattern with Gates. You talked about the drunk driving thing earlier, and that whole incident ended with Gates engaging a lawyer and contesting the case. And ultimately, the charges were dropped for lack of evidence. But then later, the deputy who arrested Gates was forced to resign. These are obviously two very different things, but you are left with the sense that Gates is continuously able to kind of pull something off. Well, well, he's not, he's not, out, of, he's not out of the woods yet. When the Justice Department closed its investigation, of Gates, the House Ethics Committee opened an investigation of Gates. And so that's not a criminal matter. They can't put him in jail, but they, you know, they could make a finding. They will make a finding um, as to the facts, and they could make some kind of recommendation. The uh, one potential outcome for Gates is what happened to George Santos, who was expelled. Mm. He's not done with it yet, for sure. I know that the House Ethics Committee is kind of hard at work on this case. And what is the feeling among Republicans in, in Congress about about this? Well, I, Gates is a really he's an anomaly in the party. More than a couple of people said to me he's the most unpopular member of Congress. Hmm. Um, and, and yet he just almost single handedly, not not quite, but almost single handedly uh, succeeded in removing the House speaker. And so it's it's kind of a paradox, you know, like how how is it possible that somebody this unpopular is able to pull off something? like that.
We'll have more after the break. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's talk more about the removal of Speaker McCarthy. What was motivating Gates in all of this, from what you can tell? I think I think the best answer is we don't know. I mean, we know what Gates said, and then there, you know, there are indications that maybe there was something else in play. And I think a lot of a lot of voters, certainly Gates supporters, you know, when they hear Gates make these arguments, they ring true. This carries a lot of support. And and what what Gates said at the time was. Federal spending is out of control. The national debt is out of control. And and here's a Republican Congress, which is kind of, you know, committed itself to kind of fiscal responsibility, just signing off on these enormous federal deficits, which are ultimately going to be ruinous to the country. And so I, Matt Gates, I'm going to do something about it. I was sent here by my constituents to kind of make change, and I'm going to make change. And if I got to shock the system to do it, I'm going to shock the system. I saw Gates tell that story and make that argument to a lot of people. I saw it in Texas. I saw it in Virginia. And it's it's compelling. You know, the, the federal deficits are gigantic. They're, you know, if they're not out of control, they're certainly very large historically. And yet, kind of both parties, what Gates and others around him would call the uniparty, <laughs> there's no difference between the Republicans and the Democrats, they sign off on him and they and they kind of carry on. And so Gates, and this is the remarkable thing, with McCarthy, with that entire incident, Gates, again, deeply unpopular among his colleagues in the Republican House. He has nine people. That's it. And what he calculated was the Republicans in the House of Representatives have a tiny majority. So... With my group of people here, if we if we stay together, we can basically dictate terms to everyone because without us, they can't get anything done. And so on that basis, uh, with a relative handful of Republicans, tiny majority of the party, he takes down McCarthy because all the Democrats join him. The Democrats hate McCarthy because he began impeachment proceedings against not just uh, Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, but also President Biden. No love for McCarthy. So the Democrats were only too happy to go along and they take down the Speaker of the House. Gates figured that whole thing out. You know, he he gamed it out and he went out and he did it. And he did it without without any support or very little support among his Republican colleagues. So it's kind of, you know, it's like super complicated, like parliamentary procedure, et cetera, et cetera. But the net result is, is that Matt Gates has emerged as one of the most effective uh, and consequential Republicans in Congress. I, I feel like I have read, you know, I don't, I don't know how conspiratorial these things are, but just there's this idea that um, the investigation has, you know, recently ramped up as a result of McCarthy and his allies seeking revenge for um, McCarthy getting removed from the speakership. I mean, do you think that politics do play a larger part in this investigation? Or is this kind of Congress, you know, doing business as usual? 
That sounds like inside baseball to me. I mean, McCarthy and Gates despise each other. No, no, no question there. But I, I don't. I would be very surprised, and I haven't seen evidence showing that Kevin McCarthy was in any way involved in the ethics investigation. I think there is a there is a a, a very interesting question, which some people told me, which I think McCarthy's people believe that Gates wanted McCarthy when he was speaker to kill the investigation. Mm -hmm. And McCarthy refused to do it and basically said, look, it's not my place. I, I, I don't have the legal authority to do it anyway. You know, forget it. And that that is the principal motivation behind Gates taking down McCarthy. Um, I don't know. You know, like it's, it's hard. It's hard to know. You know, you're talking about people's motives. Um, but but I think McCarthy has I think McCarthy has tried to stay away from all of it as, as far as I can tell. I mean, but they but they the people around McCarthy definitely believe that that Gates's removal of McCarthy was motivated by McCarthy's refusal to help Gates. They definitely believe that. I guess I'm wondering what the prominence of someone like Matt Gates means for the future of the Republican Party, given that he has become so prominent by kind of wreaking havoc on the party. It just seems like a dynamic that can't really last forever. Yeah, I, that's a really good question, because I, I think it goes to the heart of everything that he's doing now. I, I think if, you know, you look, stand back and look at the Republican Party in 2024, it's deeply split. It's kind of the old guard, you know, like your father, the Republican. <laughs> um, <laughs> they go to country clubs, they play golf, they work at banks. They are happy with incremental change. They tend to be conservative in their kind of outlook. That That's the old Republican Party. And, that, and that's represented by people like Kevin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. And then you have the new guard, which is, I think, rapidly taking over the party. And that's that's represented first by Donald Trump and second by by Matt Gates. It's directly opposed to what the country club Republican stands for. It's populism straight up. Uh, it's very angry, doesn't respect tradition, has no problem with breaking furniture to get what it's need. it needs because it believes that the system is essentially corrupt. And so and so Gates. Gates like talks about that all the time. I mean, he's like, I, I got to Washington and I discovered what I what I believe to be a terribly corrupt system. And so I'm going to shock that system and maybe even break that system. But I'm, I'm not terribly invested in preserving that system because I think it I think it ultimately hurts the American people. And so that's what's happening inside the Republican Party right now. But I think standing way back, what's happening in the party philosophically, like the party has to decide what it is. And it's not what it used to be, and it's rapidly becoming something else. You know, in in the interregnum, we're seeing all these morbid symptoms as the party kind of convulses and tries to figure out its new identity. And that's, I think, I think Gates is and Trump are the personification of that. What's the latest in the House Ethics Committee investigation? Well, we don't we don't know precisely. We know that the the Ethics Committee has reached out to lawyers in the case. There's one lawyer in particular I'm thinking of, Joel Greenberg's lawyer. They've reached out to him and he has provided lots of documents to them. So so they're they're hard at work. I believe that they've reached out to some of the witnesses in the case, i.e. the women. They're still in the middle of it. I mean I think we got I think we have a ways to go. Yeah, I feel like in the past even being associated with with Greenberg would be enough to kind of, you know, take a politician down. 
let alone being like implicated in some of the same allegations of crimes. It's just insane to me that we, we talk about Matt Gates all the time, and yet this investigation does not come up as often as it should. Well, I, th- I think what I think what Gates has figured out, and I think what Trump has figured out, which I think, to be honest, the left in America or the Democratic Party in America has not figured out, is that the more that people like Gates and Trump are criticized by the people who are perceived as being of the left or in the media, in the mainstream media, the stronger they get. And so you can say, and I think it's perfectly accurate, you know, 20 years ago, it would have been, you know, politically lethal for for a politician to hang out with, to do some of the things that Gates is accused of doing, or even just hang out with somebody like Joel Greenberg. They, they get stronger with that. I mean, because the, the more outrage that they inspire on, you know, CNN and MSNBC and in the New York Times and, and frankly, in the New Yorker, um, they love that. You know, because they can turn around to their supporters and say, look, I'm sticking it. I'm sticking it to the elites. And and people love that. You know, they love it. I went out to where Gates, Gates spoke at a rally for a congressional candidate in a place called Little Elm, Texas, which is which is outside of Dallas. Total Trump country, like 100 percent, you know, mm-hmm. and and the speeches were like one after the other. They're anti-establishment They're, I mean, again, this is populist, this is straight up populist, but it's like, you know stick it to the, <laughs> stick it to the, to the establishment. Uh, they don't care about us and the hell of them. And I, and I think that's what Gates and Trump are both tapping. And so the, the more people criticize them, the, the stronger they get. Thank you so much, Dexter. Thank you, Tyler. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Julia Nutter with editing from Stephanie Karayuki and mixing by Mike Kutchman. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Chris Bannon is Condé Nast's head of global audio. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. Enjoy your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. 